Let's read. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ears to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our pleasure to study it, to dig into it. I pray that you give each one of us hearing hearts, uh, learning hearts, that you would uh, open up the eyes of our understanding as uh, only your Holy Spirit can, that you would enable me to preach your word faithfully, clearly, and in a way that is applicable to this, your people, and uh, we continue to worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Proverbs is a very, very practical book that teaches us how to live in this fallen world with the emphasis on fallen world. Uh, it deals with all kinds of sins that we have to confront in society. First nine chapters are framed as a father giving wise counsel to his son on how to control his lusts, how to avoid succumbing to peer pressure, uh, how to guard one's heart against temptations, uh, how to maintain joy in a broken world, and many, many other practical uh, topics. But it is especially designed in these first nine chapters to give us a practical worldview that will enable Christians to know how to make wise decisions. Too many people, I think, read through Proverbs just on a surface level but if you really dig into these Proverbs, they are transformational. They really are, and there have been thousands of people down through history have testified to the ways in which this has helped them in their walks of life. Now, if you look at the introduction, this is chapter 1, and the first seven verses, never skip an introduction to a book, right? Well, um, this introduction gives us 16 words that are related to epistemology and decision-making. So this is a book that gives the foundations for a true epistemology. There's all kinds of debates out there on what is true epistemology. All epistemology is, it's a $100 word for how do we know that we know. Okay, it's, uh, it's giving us the answers to that. Okay, let's read the first seven verses of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now it starts with the word to know. True biblical epistemology does not come from man or any other aspect of creation. It comes from God's revelation. Bruce Waltke's commentary categorically states, no text in the book of Proverbs 
teaches that creation reveals wisdom. Let me repeat that. He says, no text in the book of Proverbs teaches that creation reveals wisdom. The same is true of knowledge. Now, we tend to use the terms to know and knowledge rather loosely about things that we learn from science um, and, uh, you know, other opinions that we think are pretty certain. You know, we're pretty confident that these are true. For example, I might informally say, I know my wife is in this auditorium, and, um, and it's because I am, uh, from an opinion standpoint, absolutely certain of it. But it's still an opinion because I cannot justify it biblically. Okay? So we can, there's two orders of knowledge that we need to understand. There is knowledge that God has put within us and put within every, mankind, uh, every member of mankind. Uh, John 1 talks about Jesus enlightening every man who comes into the world. And then there is true knowledge, which is justifiable knowledge, which comes from Scripture alone. And so Proverbs uses the terms knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to refer to this true knowledge, justified knowledge, which comes from the Bible. Now, I know it's a different view of knowledge and understanding than many times we're used to thinking about, but I think these first seven verses are a beautiful foundation for uh, Gordon H. Clark's uh, masterful apologetics and epistemology. If you've never studied any of his books, his is the most consistently biblical presuppositional apologetics out there. And I like uh, Greg Bonson's as well. I think he, we have to study a lot of his stuff. But if you want the absolutely most consistent apologetics out there, it is Gordon H. Clark. And the best introduction to that is Gary Crampton's book, The Scripturalism of Gordon Clark. Now, I've given you a chart of those 16 words in your outline, and they relate to every facet of epistemology. The first word, la da'at, refers to how to know. How do you know that you know? And it's because God has revealed knowledge to you. There is an internal revelation of knowledge that we call natural revelation, but it's not justifiable unless it lines up with the Bible. Okay? Everything else is opinion. It might be true opinion, but you can't justify it. Second word, chokmah, refers to wisdom, which is skillful application of that revealed knowledge. Now, this book is going to tell you there is a vast difference between people who are smart, in other words, they have their heads filled with all kinds of facts, and people who are wise, in other words, they have the ability to apply those facts in the concrete, practical areas of life, wherever they may be. There are a lot of smart people out there who don't have a lick of wisdom. And the reason I know that is because Proverbs over and over again says it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. You don't even get to first base if you don't know the Lord, if you don't have His grace, if He is not drawn your heart to understand the scriptures and to apply them. So as you go through that list of Hebrew words, you're going to realize more and more that we must bring the scriptures into the training of our children. You should never discipline your children, for example, as uh, Bruce Ray's book on discipline shows, without bringing God's word to bear. It's God's word that has power to change people's hearts. You know, the discipline by itself will not be sufficient. It's not simply a situation of, hey, do as I say, I'm the smart person here, you know, <laughs> or do as I say or else. No, we need to 
uh, constantly uh, uh, apply the word into every nook and cranny of our children's lives, which means we parents must be immersed in the book of Proverbs. Perception, the next word, is a huge part of epistemology. It is the ah or aha moments that we get when we finally understand uh, what is going on. Okay, part of true uh, knowledge is this cognitive rest. You finally are convinced. You've got it settled in your mind. The next word, words, is a major part of epistemology because knowledge is composed of propositional um, uh, truth. It's propositions, and propositions are made up of words. And part of that knowledge is the ability to uh, communicate what you have assimilated. And Proverbs helps you to do that because it is a marvelous training manual on various modes and facets of good communication. There's uh, many, many handouts I could give you on what Proverbs says about communication. The next word, understanding, deals with insight into the relationship of facts. It deals with critical thinking. So, if you've been studying math, when you've mastered you know, the textbook on math or maybe geometry or something like that, you have an understanding of that subject. You might not have the wisdom yet to be able to apply it to concrete things like building a building or sending a you know, spaceship up into space, but you do have the understanding of that book. And by the way, the Bible does give the foundations for all of math, all of geometry as well. And the Bible also says that unbelievers know math. Why? Because God's revealed it to them. But they cannot justify it. We can justify it because we can say, uh, you know, based on the fact that they're not God, they don't have universal uh, knowledge, and all disciplines, including math, start with universals, we can say, hey, the God who knows all things has revealed math to us in the Bible. So we can justify that. But God um, says that we have to go into the Scripture, we have to understand and go beyond merely general revelation. The provability of these things is what's given to us in the Bible. The next word, to receive, deals with the ability to take in truth, to assimilate it into a worldview fabric without contradiction. Now, the opposite of this is a person who has no interest in learning. Okay, so his epistemology is warped. He is dull of mind and of heart. But it's interesting that even this word is said to be developed as we get into Proverbs. So we need it to understand Proverbs, but we get more of it as we go through Proverbs. Then comes a second Hebrew word that is translated as wisdom, but this one deals with the ability to comprehend difficult things. Now that does not occur overnight. It happens as we wrestle with the Proverbs, and what Solomon calls enigmas and riddles, which are practical problems that the Lord sets before us, and as we begin mastering these, then we can start applying these into our own problems in life. Just liken it to a textbook, you know, where they give real-life problems in math, and the more you wrestle with those, the more you begin to become competent to be an engineer who can apply it in any situation that people might throw at you. So this book um, forces our minds to stretch and keep stretching and um, over time gives us uh, more and more practicality in our Christianity. The next word is justice, and it actually deals with ethical thinking. It's the ability to sort through right from wrong in anything. 
Now that's more difficult than it sounds when you've got bickering kids and you're pulling out your hair trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, or when you come to end-of-life decisions, wow, there are tricky, in the medical industry, there are tricky, tricky uh, kind of ethical decisions that you have to make. Well, daily immersion in the book of Proverbs gives us clear ethical thinking for every area of life. That includes medicine and technology. Ethics impacts everything. The next word, judgment, deals with taking dominion of our thoughts. It's a word that actually describes rulers. So everything that would be required for you to rule properly, taking dominion of this world properly, is involved in being a biblical thinker. It takes planning and work and self-discipline and rule over your spirit and discernment and wisdom from God. Now the word equity deals with upright thinking as opposed to upside-down thinking. We want to do what is right. It's a person who's got prudence in his life, as it were. Now, the next word is translated prudence. That's an absolutely mistranslated word. I don't think there's any basis. I don't even understand how the New King James came up with prudence there. Look up that word in the dictionary, and you will see that elsewhere it is translated as cunning, crafty, or shrewd when it's used negatively. But it is, when it's used positively, it, it's context of, here's a guy who is street smart. He knows what to do on the street. Or here's a guy who is business smart. He knows what to do in business. Or he's smart in the other areas of life that God has called him to. That's the kind of concept that is in this word. Now, prudence is mentioned. It's mentioned in the previous word. It's mentioned in the second to last Hebrew word. Prudence is absolutely essential, but it's kind of presupposed and mixed in with these words. Then comes a repetition for the word just for justified knowledge. Then comes the word for planning or strategic thinking. It is translated in the New King James Version as discretion. But in looking up many, many Hebrew dictionaries, seeing how it was used elsewhere, it has more the idea of plotting or scheming when it is used negatively, or planning, devising, or being strategically wise when it's used positively. The next word is to hear. This is an inner disposition very similar to prudence. It is paying attention. It's willingness to learn and to follow through on the instruction. And then the last word is wise counsel. Uh, Haylock Dictionary summarizes the nuances of this term in the phrase, the art of leadership. Uh, and I thought, well, that, that kind of does capture it because it's translated elsewhere in the Bible as steering or direction, okay? And that's another facet of, of knowing. It's, uh, you know, how do we lead? How do we lead properly? If you're pulling out your hair, wondering, how do I lead my kids? You know, it just seems like I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling all the time on this. Immerse yourself in the book of Proverbs because Solomon says this is one of the purposes for giving this book is to teach us how to lead. Uh, that's a part of wisdom. And by the way, as this book goes through and it talks about mom and dad, you know, sharing my commandments, don't think of it as your own opinions that you're sharing. Nothing but the scripture is coming off of the lips of this dad and this mom. So it's sharing biblical truth, God's wisdom into the lives of these sons and daughters. Now, it's good to evaluate ourselves on these words, because if you lack one or more of these terms, there's going to be negative implications in your life. But if you have all of these terms in your life, you're going to be able to make all of the decisions that need to be made.
uh, for the day-to-day -day practical issues. Now, many Christians have made it a habit to read through one proverb a day for their entire lives. That's been their goal. If they happen to miss a day, they just move on to the next chapter. Uh, so on uh, the 12th of the month, they will read chapter 12. On the 30th of the month, they will read chapter 30 of Proverbs. And so after 60 years, you have read through the book of Proverbs 720 times. I think it's a fantastic uh, idea. Now, in chapters 1 through 9, you have 14 lectures given to young men. Ten of those lectures are from a father to a son, and four of them are from Lady Wisdom to the same young man. And actually, we're going to be seeing that the inspired father, Solomon, is speaking on behalf of Lady Wisdom. So I think all 14, and there are other scholars that say the same thing, all 14 are lectures that come uh, from uh, the father. Over and over, the father says, listen, my son, and that phrase, my son, occurs 26 times in the first nine chapters. So some people have concluded, hey, Proverbs is a book for training boys. Uh, that's actually a mistaken conclusion. Um, on the bottom chart of your first page, you will see that there is actually a progression in the book from youth to adulthood to statesmen and other kinds of leaders. But every section actually can be of benefit to both sexes and to all ages. In fact, the woman of chapter 31, you know, the virtuous woman there, she exemplifies all of the principles of this book. That's what makes her a mature and virtuous woman. But let me give you some proofs that this book goes way beyond boys. We've already seen that chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, tells us why we should read Proverbs, but I want you to look at verse 5. Okay, verse 4 says, hey, this book is going to be beneficial to the simple and to young men, young boys. But look at verse 5. It says, a wise man will hear and increase learning. So even a mature man who is wise because he's been reading the book of Proverbs for his entire life, Every time he reads through the book of Proverbs, he can increase in learning. He can, he can continue to grow in his understanding. And the, the reason should be obvious. Proverbs is the divine revelation of God's infinite mind to us, and you're never going to be able to plumb its depths. You know, every new commentary that comes off of the shelf on Proverbs, and I now have collected over 90 commentaries on Proverbs, seems to come up with new insights that others have not thought of before. There is constant growth in our understanding of, of this book. And later I'll be showing how we're just beginning to understand the beautiful, beautiful structures uh, that hold these Proverbs together. It's really just been in the last couple of decades that people have begun to see this, again illustrating that even the wisest of men keep learning as they keep reading, and rereading the book of Proverbs. And by the way, some of these guys have been digging into Proverbs far more deeply than I have, that any of you have, into the book of Proverbs. But it's not just boys and men who should study this book. Chapters 8 and 9 have Lady Wisdom teaching a lot of the same things that the father has been teaching his son. And yes, she's a personification of, of Revelation. She's not a literal lady. But by making this symbol to be a lady, it demonstrates that wisdom and women go together, right? This is for women. It's not just for men. Many of these proverbs uh, can be actually flipped upside down as well. They apply to men as well as to women. 
and uh, afterwards I can give you some illustrations of that. But as I already mentioned, the literal woman in Proverbs 31 exemplifies all the wisdom issues that this book has been teaching. And who was it that taught King Lemuel the words of wisdom in chapter 31? It's his prophetess mother. And so this is a book of wisdom for all. But the next point in the outline says that Proverbs can be misused if we do not handle it carefully. They can easily be misunderstood and misapplied. Proverbs 26 verse 7 says, Like the legs of the lame that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools says Proverbs will be really useless in the hands of unbelievers, which is what scripturally a fool would be, because they don't have the ability to use that tool effectively. You must have wisdom to properly apply these Proverbs, and since it says that the fear of the Lord is the source of 100% of that knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, that means you are not going to be able to make sense or head or tail. You're going to misapply these Proverbs if uh, you are not walking in the Spirit, you're not in the context of grace. In fact, just to illustrate that, I've got some commentaries that I, I bought, and I think, oh, man, I should not have bought that. What a worthless commentary. It's actually worse than worthless. It is dangerous, these tools, because I found out afterwards they were, the guy was not even a believer uh, who wrote the commentary. And they just hang there. It says here, like the legs of the lame that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You read those commentaries, there was absolutely no power. There was nothing transformational. It's an empty book. I should probably pitch it, but I'm a researcher, you know, so I like to collect these things. Likewise, Proverbs 26, 9 says, like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You can bring needless pain to yourself and needless pain to other people if you misapply these Proverbs. Let me give you an example of how I brought pain and trouble to myself by misusing a proverb. Uh, when I was at Prairie Bible Institute back in the 70s, uh, I used Proverbs 20, verse 13, out of context, as my justification for pushing my body beyond its limits in the area of sleep loss. And I pushed my body in many other areas. You know, I'd fast, you know, for three weeks, sometimes even more, uh, just water fast, no food. And I would exercise to the nth degree. I'll just deal with this sleep issue that I was abusing. So here's what uh, this verse says. Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. Now I took the first phrase, do not love sleep, as an excuse to hate sleep as being a waste of time, which I only later realized was an insult to Jesus as wasting his time when he slept. He slept in the Gospels, right? But I absolutely hated sleep. I was sleeping three to four hours a night and trying, but being unsuccessful, wishing I could cut it down to zero. I thought sleep is an utter waste of time which is what? It's rebellion against my creaturely limits. And so what was wrong with my interpretation? Well, it failed three principles of interpretation of Proverbs, and God punished me for it. My body was racked with all kinds of problems as a result of these abuses. But anyway, first of all, it didn't take seriously the full import of the parallel. 
There's parallelisms in these. So you've got to take both sides of the proverb and see how they fill out or maybe complement or give exceptions or things like that. But the, the second side of that says that we open, need to open our eyes, which implies we have been sleeping. But second, it failed to realize that Proverbs 20, verses 4 through 13, is a chiasm. You know, chiasms are the A, B, C, D, C, B, A kind of patterns with the center being the heart of that, the, the main theme. And Proverbs is absolutely loaded with chiasms. This is one of the reasons why non-Hebrew thinking Westerners tend to miss all of the connections that are in there. They're not used to thinking of parallels to help interpret. Well, the parallel verses, verse 13 and 4, show that God is not opposing sleep at all. Not at all. He's opposing laziness. And then thirdly, I fail to interpret this proverb in light of the other proverbs on sleep. This is the broader context of the book. Every proverb needs to be interpreted in light of everything else Proverbs says about that topic. So Proverbs 3 tells us that if we follow God's laws consistently, there will be reward. He says, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. So which is it? Do not love sleep or your sleep will be sweet. Uh, some people think that's a contradiction. No, it, it depends on the context, the kind of person that you are speaking to. Um, and so when you look at all of these different uh, passages and Proverbs that deal with sleep, you come to the realization that God made our bodies to need sleep. He has even blessed us with the gift of sleep. He has commanded us to sleep. And such gifts of God can be abused through laziness. So it's laziness that was the focus. That's what I was missing. Now, what are some other ways that people have abused Proverbs? Well, health and wealth people point to Proverbs that promise health, long life, and wealth. And then they accuse you of lack of faith if you are not rich. Lack of faith if you or one of the people in your family has died. Uh, lack of uh, faith if you are, have sickness. And wow, that hurts. I mean, that's like Job's friends, right? <laughs> Accusing you of, of lack of faith. And so in overreaction to that, some commentaries try to remedy these abuses by saying that Proverbs never gives us principles, laws, or promises. They just give to us probabilities which may or may not happen, not promises. And they say that Proverbs gives us the ideal, and Ecclesiastes and Job tells us what's really going to happen in life. And so they almost give you the attitude, well, forget Proverbs, you know, I'm just going to go to Ecclesiastes and Job. And I do not buy that at all. I do not buy that. And I say it's uh, a misinterpretation of Job and Ecclesiastes, uh, by the way, as well. Bruce Waltke, in his uh, two-volume commentary on Proverbs, rightly reacts against that, and he says this, the popular evangelical solution that these are not promises but probabilities though containing an element of truth, raises theological, practical, and psychological problems by stating the matter badly. See, the right approach is to say that they are indeed the promises of a God who cannot lie, but when you look at the structure of the book, God conditions those promises. And uh, he, he, he tells us some other contextual ideas about the promises. <clears throat> And so, 
Um, the promises are conditioned just like the three things that I outlined in the previous example. Let me just give uh, one verse that would clarify. Proverbs 24, 16 is quite clear that the righteous man may fall seven times and yet he will get up again. I, I think that's significant. It's not a contradiction. It's saying, no, obviously, the righteous man can fall. He can face calamity. He can face financial disaster. In fact, he can face it seven times. Let me read that proverb. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So it, it is possible to yank proverbs out of their context, which gives specifications and expectations to the general principles. Uh, can God test us? by taking away some of these promises for a time. Yes, he can. He did that with Job, didn't he? But that does not do away with the promise, and it does not in any way contradict the promises in Deuteronomy 28, which are also repeated in Proverbs. Now, some Proverbs seem absolute in their application, but the context limits the absolute promise to a specific situation. And I'll give you an example that has puzzled many, many people. And actually, it's brought hurt to many people. People claim that Proverbs 22, verse 15 guarantees that the rod of correction will always drive foolishness from a child. And on the surface, that's exactly what it seems to say. Proverbs 22:15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So is it the, always the parent's fault when a child remains foolish? Well, not necessarily. Proverbs 27, verse 22 says, Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. Now, in Proverbs, a fool is an unbeliever. He does not have a regenerate heart. Now, you may be able to get uh, outward conformity from an unbeliever, but his heart is still that of a fool, and the only thing his heart is going to produce is foolishness. This is why we tell parents, you have got to shepherd the heart of your children. You've got to be presenting the gospel to your children, constantly driving them to the cross of Christ, because we don't want to just be having outward conformity. We want that child to go from having a fool's heart to having a regenerate heart. But there's more to it than that. Does a regenerate heart also have foolishness? Well, yes, of course it does, especially when that regenerate heart is quite young. And Proverbs 22:15 does give an absolute promise in that situation. Praise God. So if the child is a fool or an unbeliever, no amount of discipline will completely remove his or her foolishness. Will it remove some? Yes, it will. But the person will still think like a fool, even though outwardly conforming. But... The other proverb says it is imperative that we disciple foolishness out of the heart of regenerate children as well. And with regenerate children, we will indeed have success. But I don't believe that that proverb applies to Esau's or Ishmael's. It'll help, but it's not going to regenerate them. Only the gospel can regenerate, okay? Now, you might respond, okay, Phil, or Pastor Kaiser, whatever you call me. On what basis can you possibly say that this is a regenerate child? There is nothing in this text that says this is a regenerate child. And I say, okay, well, the thing that gives me absolute confidence, he's talking about a regenerate child, is the context. Proverbs 22:15 is part of a chiasm, and the heart of the chiasm is verse 11, which calls all in the family to be friends with God the King. 
Okay, this is the gospel. You're going to be friends with God the King. It says, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. Which king? Well, the next verse tells us which king rules over every segment of life, including that kid's heart. It's Yehoah. But let's look back at the parallel part of the chiasm, which is in verse 6. As translated in the New King James Version, it says much the same thing. This is chapter 22, verse 6. Um, it says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if that is the correct translation, then this is really the same promise that verse 15 gives. And then there's different kinds of parallelism in, in Hebrew poetry. This would be an example of synonymous parallelism within chiasm. So there could be synonymous parallelism within a verse. There could be synonymous parallelism within a chiasm as well. So that would give two promises that if you discipline and disciple your regenerate child, they will outgrow their foolishness, guaranteed. Do not be discouraged. It will happen. So that's one possibility. But many scholars translate verse 6 differently, showing that even with a regenerate child, there will be problems without consistent discipline and training. Now, Bruce Waltke, who's probably done more analysis of the structuring of Proverbs than anybody else, translates it this way. Dedicate a youth according to his foolish way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In other words, he will not depart from his foolish way. Uh, so on that translation, it is an antithetic parallelism that fills out and complements via contrast the ideas that are in verse 15. It does not duplicate that. God has set things up among Christians that when you allow your child to go, quote, in the way he wants to go, which is the way another, uh, several other scholars actually translate that phrase, you let your kid go the way he wants to go, you let him go just naturally, it is guaranteed that this child, whether regenerate or not, will turn out badly when he grows up. He will not depart from his ways of doing things. You do not want child-centered education. It's disastrous. Now, I'm not going to settle for you which of those two translations is, is appropriate. Either way you take it, there is no contradiction in the text whatsoever. J. Adams takes it the second way, as do some other scholars. So on their interpretation, verse 6 is parallel to Proverbs 29:15, which says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Any child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now, we haven't even dealt with the structure of this book yet, but you're, I think, beginning to see that if you understand the structure of the book, it hugely helps us to interpret specific prov uh, proverbs and keeps us from being like that fool who pokes a thorn through his own hand. Another phrase that has been taken completely out of context comes from Proverbs 23, verses 12 through 16, which is a unit. There are units within Proverbs that are grouped to interpret each other, but they have ignored the unit as a whole, and they've actually ignored the context of the verse. They've taken one phrase from verse 13, if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Now, have kids died from beatings? Absolutely, yes, they have. In fact, just a few years ago, there was a cult that got in trouble because they quoted that phrase out of context and said, there is no beating whatsoever that will ever kill a child. And they beat this kid to death, very literally. And they said, well, that's what this text here says. 
But that proverb needs to be taken in context of the whole interpretive unit of verses 12 through 16, which speaks of very godly, caring discipleship. God dictates how the rod should be used, not us. Now, I liken these proverbs to the secular proverb that gun owners use with their children. Every gun is loaded. Really? My gun's not loaded. No, they say every gun is loaded. And what they're meaning by that is treat every gun as being loaded or you're going to end up facing some kind of a catastrophe. Even if you know it's not loaded, every gun is loaded. That's the way you need to treat it. And that's the way these Proverbs many times are giving. They're saying this is the direction you always need to be training your children in. But the context gives nuances that are missed by careless interpreters. I'm just going to give you one more example of misuse of Proverbs, this time... The misinterpretation is solved when you realize that these two verses form a couplet. Okay, they're designed to stand together and not separate. Atheists love to quote Proverbs 26 verses 4 and 5 as if they were contradictory Proverbs. And I'm thinking, now what idiot is going to put two verses together that are so explicitly contradictory as the atheists say and not even catch it? You know, uh, anyway... Just on the surface, their accusation is wrong. But here's Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Are those two Proverbs contradictory? Absolutely not. When you look at the parallel that's within it. Those two verses are foundational for presuppositional apologetics. Far from being contradictory, they show the two stages of debate that are absolutely needed when you are debating with fools. The first proverb insists, we must never start, that's why it's the first proverb, right? We must never start with independent thinking, like the evidentialists do, or we're going to end up with the same independent reasoning as the fool. We're never going to be able to expose the fool's folly. We must always start with Scripture as the only foundation for a rational explanation of life. But when the fool rejects the Bible, you can say, if you've rejected the only answer to life, let me now show you that on your own worldview, it is impossible for you to be able to defend the reality of logic, of law, of ethics, of anything. You cannot defend it. And um, the, the person who I think has done the most fabulous job on giving a full documentation of how this works out in practical ways is Greg Bonson's lectures on apologetics, which I think every young people needs to go through all of those lectures two or three or four or five times. I mean, they are fantastic. Now, he takes a different perspective than Gordon Clark, uh, they're both presuppositionalists, but I, I love Bonson's transcendental argument. Um, you know, Clark, his epistemology, I think, is great. Bonson fills in a lot of the gaps. The point is, it takes wisdom to use Proverbs, and the more we read the whole book of Proverbs, emphasis again on the word whole, the more wisdom we get in applying Proverbs to real-life situations. Okay, let's move on. The way the book of Proverbs was structured helps us to avoid some of those common mistakes. Now, I've already hinted at it. I've given you illustrations of parallelisms and chiasms and couplets. There's a lot more to it than that. Now, last week we saw how important it was to understand the structure of the Psalter 
in order to fully appreciate the meaning of the Psalter. But we also saw that, wow, over the last 2,000 years, it's taken a long time for people to really begin to grasp that. It's really in the last couple of decades. I mean, there's been some forward work on the Psalms, but in the last couple of decades that they have really began to understand the structure of the Psalms. Well, there was a similar thing happening with the book of Proverbs. Even though we are not nearly as far along in this process as we have come with Psalms. Over the last 2,000 years, there have always been some scholars who have recognized there has to be some order and arrangement to the Proverbs because Solomon says that there is. We just don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, they've maybe seen some of it, but let me give you their reasons why they say there has to be order. First, everyone acknowledges that chapters 1 through 9 are very ordered. So why not the rest of the book? However, until people realized that Proverbs is chock full of chiasms and other Hebrew structures, they were confused. Now, they looked at the passages and they say, okay, well, this topic does appear uh, here, and there's other topics that are grouped here, but it seems to be random. Well, it's only random on Western thinking. If you look at it through Hebrew eyes, it is beautiful. There's beautiful structure all the way through it. Second, in the introduction, Solomon had said that this book contains riddles, or more literally, hidden things. The Hebrew word is hidah. Okay, the idea that the word conveys is that some of the things of Proverbs are well enough hidden that it's going to require wise men to uncover those things. They are hidden. Well, that was certainly the case with the structure of the book. They have been riddles until recently. For example, Matthew Henry, uh, one of my favorite practical commentaries of the past, uh, he didn't get it. He said, it is Seldom that there is any coherence between the verses. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown claim the verses are entirely unconnected. And that was the opinion of many people. But as early as 1871, Bengal stumbled upon some organizational clues that just blew his mind. It opened up the Proverbs and he said, there is a beautiful order and structure. And people say, well, how come you didn't write it down? You needed to record this. And, you know, so that was lost. But there are other people who talked about seeing this structure that was in there. And yet, thankfully, recently, many people have been writing about this and making progress. Third, Ecclesiastes 12 appears to look back to this time when it says that Solomon, quote, pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Now, pondering how Proverbs are going to be put into the book does not sound to me like random, we're just going to put them wherever they fit here. No, he's thinking it through. There's a rational process to it. And the phrase, set in order many Proverbs, indicates anything but an arbitrary hodgepodge. There is order, there is arrangement, there is a rational purpose. And Ecclesiastes also calls Solomon a master of these collections, not just a collector, and claims that each word was well-ordered, verse 10, and like a well-driven nail, verse 11. So you would expect every verse in the book of Proverbs to have a purpose and a place. It is nailed in place. It's right where it needs to be. Fourth, several of the Proverbs are repeated in a way that suggests a structural purpose. And like I say, in the last couple of decades, people will say, oh, now we see why these Proverbs have been repeated. Now, of the 90-plus commentaries that I own on Proverbs, there are three that stand out as providing, I think, by far the most help 
in understanding the structure. And since almost nothing has been done on this, I'm going to give you the names of these books, and you may want to buy a copy of these. Uh, there's no way I can dig into all of the structure for you. Uh, the first one, um, first commentary is by Dwayne Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T. -T. He was the first one to clue me into the presence of chiasms in, in, in uh, Proverbs. The second is Bruce Waltke, who is an evangelical who has done fabulous work on the microstructures that are not reflected in the handout that I, that I gave to you, but which are super helpful in interpreting individual, individual uh, Proverbs. Now, his book is super technical, so most of you might find it ultra-boring. I found it ultra-boring. I had to really plod through uh, some of his stuff, but it's the only one that gets into these microstructures so well. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but hey, we're in the infancy of uh, discovering these things. But my highest recommended commentary for you is by Doug Meyer. Now, some of you may know him. He was a member of our... Uh, former church, uh, Trinity Presbyterian. He's written a splendid layman's commentary in Proverbs called Solomon's Enduring Treasure. It's super easy to read, and it collects, especially on structure, most of the main conclusions, it doesn't get all of them, but most of the main conclusions from other commentaries without all of the boring stuff that people go through in those other commentaries. So it's Doug Meyer, M-E-I, E-R, Solomon's Enduring Treasure. Now, having said that, as boring as Bruce Waltke is, he has made some astounding forward progress on discerning the microscopic intricacies of this book that Doug Meyer doesn't get into. Uh, he's been using the science of poetics to uncover these patterns, and once they're uncovered, they're pretty obvious. You look at them and say, wow, how come I didn't see that before? I mean, it's very, very obvious, but it takes hard work to uncover these. Here is a definition of poetics. It is the science by which we, quote, find the building blocks of literature and the rules by which they are assembled. Thus, poetics is to literature as linguistics is to language. In essence, poetics is the grammar of literature. I, I like that phrase. Poetics is the grammar of literature. Its value to hermeneutics cannot be overstated. We must first know how a text means before we can know what it means. So let's look first of all at the broadest structure of this book that's reflected in your outline. Uh, it is super easy to know exactly where each collection of Proverbs starts, where each one stops. Why? Because the book itself clearly, explicitly tells us, and yet if you look at most commentaries, you look at their outlines, they don't reflect what the, what the text itself says at all. Now I'll read you each clue that starts a new collection of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 1 has the heading, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So we know that the first collection of Proverbs was written by Solomon. Now take a look at the first verse of chapter 10. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon. So it's repeating that. So we know that all of chapter 10 through chapter 22, verse 16, was also written by Solomon, but it now constitutes a second collection quite distinct from the first. He wants us to see these as being two separate volumes of Proverbs. In chapter 22, verses 17 through 21, 
Solomon tells us that this next collection of Proverbs was in part written by him and was in part written by other inspired wise men. So he was in part the author, in part he's just a collector and organizer of those Proverbs. But the way that he grouped the Proverbs has an inspired purpose. And it's understanding that purpose that aids in the interpretation of these Proverbs. Collection 4 begins at chapter 24, verse 23. That seems to be added later by Solomon, because verse 23 says, these things also belong to the wise men. Now the word also indicates a later edition of Proverbs by exactly the same wise men. Now if it's the same wise men who wrote those Proverbs, why didn't he just lump it in with the previous uh, group, especially since this isn't very long? And the answer is because there is an inspired structure to the book, with the number seven being the number of perfection. Now, some people believe they can identify the specific names of the authors who gave those uh, Proverbs. In any case, Solomon puts those collections together by inspiration. He ordered them, but he kept the fourth collection separate from the third for a reason. But then we have a very very unusual and unexpected title in chapter 25 verse 1 25 verse 1 these also are proverbs of solomon which the men of hezekiah king of judah copied interesting why would solomon not have included proverbs that he himself wrote earlier in his volume of proverbs you know the answer is easy canon that God gave in Solomon's day was sufficient for them. The saints of that day, they had access to other revelation that we don't have. And 1 Peter 1, 11 through 12 tells us that the growing canon of the Old Testament was specifically being prepared for new covenant times. It says to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things that they wrote. So Solomon's Proverbs were providentially preserved by divine inspiration included in yet another collection by Hezekiah. Now Miller demonstrates a beautiful symmetry to this new edition of Proverbs as well. At each stage there was perfection. Parts 1 and 3 of this edition of the book of Proverbs was the same size, beautifully surrounding part 2, which was the main collection of Proverbs for his day. So his part 2 is also our collection to. And on our chart, you can see a little bit of that structure. His main collection has exactly 375 verses, which scholars point out, hey, that's the numeric value for Solomon. If you're reading Hebrew, you'd say 375. Oh yeah, that's, that's Solomon's name. So Solomon's name is incorporated right into the structure of the book. But as the chart on your outline, bottom page, uh, page one, shows, um, that 375 verses is divided up into three sections, each of which are composed of symmetrical units. First section has exactly 37 units of five Proverbs, paralleled by the last section in Collection 2 that also has 37 units of five Proverbs, and is linked with the middle section that has five units of five Proverbs, and each of those smaller units of five Proverbs clearly belong together, with the five Proverbs in each unit filling out the meaning of that whole unit. And there are some other fascinating things. When you start delving down into Hezekiah's edition of Proverbs, like, it's beautiful, it's just amazing. Uh, we know from other scriptures that Hezekiah was a prophetically endowed king. 
He took some of the 3,000 Proverbs that 1 Kings 4.32 says Solomon wrote by inspiration. And here's the thing. Only a sixth of Solomon's 3,000 Proverbs made it into the volume that we have in our possession. Why were the others left out? Well, because those other Proverbs, they were needed for that time and not for our time. Keep in mind that the canon was being developed specifically for New Covenant times when it would be our only, only form of inspired revelation. They had many forms of inspired revelation other than the Bible back then. Then chapter 30, verse 1 begins the next collection with these words. The words of Agur, the son of Jaka, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukul, and then comes a bunch more inspired proverbs by the prophet Agur. Now I say inspired because the word utterance is literally oracle. And oracle is a word that's used in the prophets to refer to inspired revelations from God. The seventh collection of Proverbs is in chapter 31, which begins with the title, The Words of King Lemuel, The Utterance Which His Mother Taught Him. Now the word utterance, again, is literally oracle, which refers to an inspired prophetic utterance from God. So it appears that King Lemuel was the scribe, his mother was the prophetess. So the upshot of it is that Proverbs is really a book of books or a book of seven collections of Proverbs. And the amazing thing about it is that all seven books are knit together in such a way via chiasms and other interlocking structures, it seems as if you can't divide the book. That's why some people get confused when they don't use these seven. They are interlinked in a way that it seems like it's written by one author. And what's surprising about that is these Proverbs were written over many, many lifetimes. But in one sense, it shouldn't be surprising if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture because God could give each piece of the intricate puzzle as it was being prophesied and give it in a way that it all fits together perfectly. Now, the Hebrew lets us know how the sections will break out within each collection, and it does so via obvious Hebrew markers. And piecing together the evidence of several scholars, those markers break the book down into collections. That's what we just went through, okay? Then sections, so if you look on your chart, that would be the three sections that move from youth to adulthood and to statesmen or leaders. Then come units, then subunits or stanzas, then proverb pairs, or what scholars speak of as strophes, then lines, then verses, then half verses, then phrases, then words, then syllables, then sounds. And the interesting thing is, even the sounds of the Hebrew are very significant to the interpretation of some of these, some of these proverbs and showing the logical connections between the proverbs. Now, what makes people miss the logical connections in many of the proverbs is that they are arranged as chiasms. Should not be a surprise. We've been seeing this recurring uh, through previous books, haven't we? Dwayne Garrett's commentary outlines intricate chiasms within chiasms where the parallels in the small chiasm are interpreting each other. And then you've got the parallels in the big chiasm. Sometimes there's little chiasms paralleled in the big chiasms that help to interpret this chiasm, which in turn gives information for the individual verses. Absolutely amazing. And it forms a seamless chain of chiasms throughout the collection. Now, it would take quite a few sheets. I started to do it, and I completely ran out of time, and I'm not going to have time next week or the next week. But if you buy 
If you buy um, Doug Meyer's book, he collected quite a few of those chiasms for you, and so it'll help you in your interpretation. He didn't have all of them. And again, we're in the infancy of uh, applying this. Okay, so in Doug Meyer's book, he shows the overall progress of the book from youth, that's chapters 1 through 9, to adults, chapters 10 through 24, to statesmen and other leaders, that's chapters 25 through 31. And he also shows uh, progress within those sections from sowing, taking root, bearing fruit, and growing relationship with God. I hope by now you're getting a strong, strong feeling. This is not a hodgepodge collection of Proverbs. It is a tightly, structurally integrated book. And there's a lot more structure than is even present in the chart that I gave you. Waltke shows that as you start working with microstructures, which I don't dare get into this morning, including syllables and Hebrew sounds, you discover all kinds of stuff that is so cool, stuff I was utterly, utterly blind to until I started reading uh, Bruce Waltke. Now it makes sense to me, but I had not caught it before at all. Uh, most of Waltke's discussions are for the technician, and as I say, bored the daylights out of me. I don't know why it is that scholars feel that they have to write in a pedantic, really boring, boring uh, style rather than writing for laymen, but it just seems to be the way it is. But if you happen to read Waltke's book, you'll see that this rediscovery of the rules of Hebrew poetics is beginning to open up the meaning of Proverbs in a whole new way. There are sets of Proverbs that must be read together to interpret all of them correctly. And I've tried to give you some examples of those. There are couplets where each proverb helps to fill out the meaning of the corresponding couplet, like the answering a fool couplet. Uh, Waltke shows how even the phrase, the fear of the Lord, structures the whole book and it puts the definitive kibosh to the liberal ideas that have been out there for decades, like Wybray's ridiculous claim that Proverbs is a book promoting a man-centered view of life, or Brueggemann's claim that Proverbs is supposedly the good news that mankind can steer its own ship. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, even a kid will tell you that's not what it means. Or Crenshaw's weird claim that Proverbs teaches us that we can find well-being in life apart from divine assistance. No, this is not a self-help book, as these guys claim. Far from it. If the fear of the Lord is the origin of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord structures the whole book, then apart from God, nothing that is said about any part of life makes any sense apart from God. The tight structure of the book shows we can do nothing without God, and the book calls us to fear God and to commit absolutely all of our ways to Him. As Bob Deffenbaugh words it, Proverbs does away with the distinction between the sacred and the secular. That's so important to understand. Proverbs speaks to sex, money, civil government, contracts, courts, business, childbearing, bargaining, taking care of your property, and many other so-called secular areas of life in such a way as if they belong to God, which of course they do, and as if they have to follow the rules of King Jesus, which of course they do. Now in this, Proverbs is very similar to the book, uh, the, 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 the prophets. The prophets were simply interpreting, applying, and judging people for violating the Pentateuch. Well, that's all that Proverbs is doing. It's doing exactly the same thing, but in a much more practical way, where Amos writes in general terms, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, Proverbs puts feet to that. I'll just give you one example, because we don't have a lot of time. Proverbs 20.10 says, Diverse weights and diverse measures are both alike abominations to the Lord. 
Now, put into modern lingo, that means every single coin that was minted by the United States of America after 1963 is an abomination to the Lord. If you've got any coins in your pocket, you've got abominations to the Lord in your pocket. Now, that's putting it crudely, but that's exactly what that text means. And it's got many other phrases that would shake up the establishment if the establishment would take Proverbs seriously. It speaks to politics. It does not leave public affairs out of religion. It insists that true religion, true wisdom, true knowledge must invade every nook and cranny of public and private life. Now let me give you an extremely brief overview of the book. I've given you the main sections, okay, and I've already read the seven, first seven verses. By the way, verse 7 stands as the key verse. If you want a key verse to Proverbs, Almost everybody agrees. Proverbs 1-7 is the key verse. Then come 14 lectures from a father to a son that are crafted in the form of a chiasm, and you're not going to be able to discern that chiasm from the way I put the outline because they overlap. That's a fa- another fascinating inter- interleave. Anyway, some people see Lady Wisdom as not being a lecture from the dad, so they only count 10 lectures of the dad, and then they say these others are just interludes. Uh, I don't see it that way. A lady wisdom is simply a metaphor for Solomon's divinely revealed wisdom in the book of Proverbs. He speaks wisdom. He is speaking out lady wisdom by inspiration. And even the structure shows that lady wisdom is the revelation of Proverbs and or all of Scripture. Now, sadly, I won't have time to cover everything in my notes on the 14 lectures other than to say they provide fascinating and powerful discipleship material for your kids. Assuming, of course, you know how to apply them right? You, you've dug into them yourself. I, I can't skip over point number four, though. Who is Lady Wisdom? This is such a controversial topic nowadays. I have to deal with it. Um, let me just skip down here a little ways. One of the common errors in the church is to treat her as the pre-incarnate Christ. And I want to spend a bit of time on her because godly men are divided on that. I don't want to disparage their name because there are some good reasons for seeing Lady Wisdom as pointing to Christ. And so let let me start with the striking similarities between this personification of wisdom and John's Gospel, which says Jesus is the Logos, which some people say is the wisdom of God. Now, of course, in my interpretation, there are going to be parallels too. So that, I don't think these prove anything. But let me, first of all, make the case, the best case I can for Jesus being Lady Wisdom. First, both existed with God before creation existed. Let's read chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits, so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was set beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. Second, those last verses indicate that he had some, played some role in creation. Third, 
both descended from heaven to dwell with humanity. And you can especially see this in the earlier descriptions of Lady Wisdom. You know, it actually fits my view as well. You know, if wisdom is God's divine mind that is communicated to us, it has to come down to us. It has to be incarnated just like Jesus was. I think it actually proves my point much more because if you read the texts, this so-called incarnation happened way before Jesus is incarnated. And there is an incarnation of the word into kind of human form by coming through the prophets and being inscripturated in human language. So I, I think it fits us anyway, but I'm trying to give their arguments since I shouldn't be arguing with them. Fourth, both Lady Wisdom and Jesus were rejected by the bulk of humanity. Now, same is true of Scripture. Fifth, both Lady Wisdom and Jesus teach us what God thinks. Sixth, both call those who listen to them children. Seventh, both lead believers to life and immortality, and both threaten death to those who do not believe. And then finally, both offer blessings and the symbols of food and drink. So what's there not to like about saying that Lady Wisdom is Jesus himself? Well, Bruce Waltke and many other scholars point out, if we take her as the pre-incarnate Son of God, and this is a very, very popular view, if we take her as the pre-incarnate Son of God, there are huge, huge dangers. These are the scriptures that were used by the Arians to teach their heresies about Jesus being brought into existence and not being eternal. This is the go-to passage for modern Jehovah's Witnesses. This is also the go-to passage for modern radical evangelical feminists who claim that Jesus must actually be female since he is the wisdom. And eternally, this was just a, a short manifestation in male form, but eternally Jesus is actually a female, they say. Other feminists go even further and say this is the goddess Sophia, a separate entity. So Waltke says that Lady Wisdom is not Jesus himself. At most, she would be a type of Jesus, and all types of Christ are inferior to the antitype Jesus. So that's one way that godly scholars have dealt with this. But I don't see her as being a type as well. There are many scholars who point out that the dissimilarities are just as striking as the similarities. For example, let me give you two examples. Chapter 8, verse 12, has Lady Wisdom saying, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find out knowledge and discretion. So it makes it look like wisdom, prudence, knowledge, and discretion are all sisters or persons. So are there four persons of the Godhead who are all divine? No. Likewise, in chapter 7, verse 4, the Father tells the Son the human son, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. Again, there are two personifications, but how can Solomon call one a sister and the other nearest kin? It's obvious that they're not literal. Here's the bottom line. I think it is better to see wisdom, understanding, prudence, and knowledge as all coming from God's mind, and because they are with us, they are with us in the streets, it is the revelation of God's mind, and all three persons of the Godhood speak these, this wisdom and this knowledge. Now, certainly in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3, that's the go-to verse for them. But the Holy Spirit is also called the spirit of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, Isaiah eleven two. And the Father is the giver of wisdom, Ephesians 1, 17. So this is merely a personification of Proverbs, which is God's wisdom, and the personification of all God's revelation. Now, if wisdom is supposed to be on our tongue, which Proverbs commands it to be on our tongue, 
then every time we speak the Proverbs, we are speaking Lady Wisdom into the world, right? You know, like Peter says, uh, our lips should be like the oracles of God. Why? By always having the scriptures on our lips. And so this means, well, let me give you another verse. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For Jehovah gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So wisdom is communicable. And then further, the inspired writer, who is the father, also gives exactly the same wisdom as Lady Wisdom. Why? Because his prophecies are not his own. They're the words of the Lord. He's the mouthpiece for the Lord. So Waltke says it's significant that there are numerous parallels between the Father's speeches and Lady Wisdom's speeches. Both are giving the same wisdom. If the Father is not a type of Jesus, then Lady Wisdom is not a type of Jesus. I think that's the bottom line. If you say Lady Wisdom is a type of Jesus, then the prophet has to be a type of Jesus as well. And indeed, I believe the inspired Father is the one giving the Lady Wisdom uh, speeches. Both what the Father says and what Lady Wisdom says are divine wisdom because they both come from God. And here's how B.C. Newton worded it. Jesus is wisdom, but wisdom is not Jesus. Jesus is certainly the perfect embodiment of wisdom, but wisdom itself is not Jesus. Similarly, we know that God is love, but love is not God. God perfectly embodies love, and he gives definition to what love is, but love is not to be equated with being God. Love is only a fragment of God's character, and wisdom is only one attribute of Jesus. So the danger of equating wisdom to Jesus is that wisdom is not the fullness of Christ's person. But there are practical ramifications for the right interpretation. If Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created this world by wisdom, then wow, we ought to go to the wisdom he has revealed to understand this world. If God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by wisdom, created us, then we need to go to the Proverbs. We need to go to the Scripture to understand us. And then finally, this lady wisdom is contrasted with lady folly, and you'll see that in your outline. Lady folly is the personification of the wisdom of the world. Most people agree. Lady, wisdom, uh, lady folly is not anyway Satan or any other person. It's the wisdom of the world. It's the personification of that. So it is the wisdom of Scripture versus the wisdom of the world. Well, when you take that position, suddenly every single one of the wisdom passages opens up in a beautiful way. On the other view, there's a lot of wisdom passages that don't make sense. So... Um, Lady Wisdom is in the city square, in the king's house, in the marketplace, in people's marriages, instructing children. In short, she is in every nook and cranny of life, and we need to receive her into every nook and cranny of our lives. That's the purpose of the powerful contrast between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And that's what Tremper Longman does in his uh, commentary. He says she invites us to dine. She wants to be assimilated into our lives. Uh, part of our lives. By reading and internalizing Proverbs, we make Proverbs part of us. Now, after chapters 1 through 9, which form an introduction, so to speak, to the rest of the book, we have all of the collections of chapters 10 through 30, which are a bunch of pithy sayings that give practical guidance. So if you look at chapters 1 through 9 as hear and fear, or fear and hear, then chapters 10 through 31 can be labeled as do. So chapters 1 through 9 prepare us for their sayings. And this whole section of collections 2 through 4 is addressed to adults, where the previous section talks to sons, youth, children, and young men. This section speaks to adult. And by the time you've been discipled in chapters 1 through 9, you ought to be ready to be able to handle these difficult, more difficult proverbs. Now, if you look at the bottom two rows of my chart, 
I have counted up who is addressed in each section and the labels that are given to them, and I believe my statistical analysis vindicates Doug Meyer's division, which is also shared by a number of others. In the first section, the phrase, my son is repeated 26 times, my children four times, youth three times, young men two times. In contrast, the next major section, which encompasses all of collections two through four, has the word man repeated 107 times, father 15 times, mother six times, woman six times, old men four times. So there's a clear progression. And then finally, collections five through seven gives us wisdom for statesmen and other leaders. First two sections are preparing for the leadership of this section. First proverb is, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. The next proverb talks about kings, etc., etc. And um, my statistical analysis on that chart shows that the whole grouping is focused upon not just statesmen, as Meyer's commentary says, but also other leaders. The word king occurs 13 times, servant eight times, ruler seven times, father six times, justice four times, master three times, and also has references to throne, judge, gates, palace, troop, club, sword, and arrow, and actually other terms that respond, relate to various forms of leadership. Her, uh, <coughs> the last section, I think just seeing those three groupings helps us to interpret the Proverbs. But the virtuous woman in the last chapter was the husband of a statesman. Verse 23 says, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So obviously he has an office of statesman, but she is singled out as a person who embodies all the wisdom of the Proverbs, showing that it is possible to live these Proverbs out in real life. Her husband also appears to, to live them out. And so there's a real exemplification of Proverbs in that chapter. Now let me end very, very quickly with the Christ of Proverbs. If Lady Wisdom is not the Christ, who is? I believe the only clear reference to Christ is in Proverbs 30, verses 2 through 6, which says, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So it starts in verses 2 through 3 by saying that even Agur, here he is a prophet, here he is giving us scripture, even Agur is stupid and utterly without understanding wisdom or knowledge apart from God's revelation. You and I are stupid and utterly without any understanding, knowledge, or wisdom apart from the divine knowledge of Scripture. This is the epistemology of Proverbs. This is taking us back to what we talked about in the inter introduction. True knowledge is what is revealed in the Bible and can be extrapolated from the Bible by logical deduction. Science is not true knowledge. It is merely probable opinion, and that's why we don't get distressed when science keeps changing its opinions. Opinions are legitimate. They may even be true. Only God knows for sure. We might say, yes, they're true, because we're pretty certain, but only God knows for sure. We speak of them as operational judgments, okay? We operate with them because they seem to work. You can say in a loose sense that you know certain facts of science, but philosophically, it is impossible to justify that opinion. Only what is in Scripture can be justified, and therefore only what is in Scripture can technically be said 
to be epistemologically justified knowledge. Apart from the Bible, you are stupid, lack understanding, knowledge, wisdom. That's the epistemology of Proverbs. He then goes on to show that no one has ascended into heaven or come down from heaven, but he points to one who will, the Son of God, who is the Word, and who has given us the revelation of the Word to which we must never add. He has revealed the Father. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and by fully revealing the Father to his people in the Scriptures, he has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is sufficient. And we thank you that it is transformational. But we recognize, Father, our inadequacies. We recognize with Agur that we are stupid without understanding unless your Holy Spirit illumines our eyes to see the scriptures and how to apply those scriptures in our lives. And I pray that you would enable each one of us to do that as we read the book of Proverbs and as we read the rest of scripture. Be glorified, Father, in our epistemology. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.